Well, good evening. Uh, I especially enjoyed this morning. I thought that Nick did a very excellent job in presenting uh, the um, the thing, the theme that he presented, and uh, it's such an encouragement to see our young men as they grow. And one of the things, of course, that uh, was probably lacking when I was their age was that same kind of encouragement. And uh, as a result, there's very few my age left. But uh, we thank the Lord for the, we call them, I call them young men, but they're not young anymore. Uh, but that group that are taking these younger men and uh, taking them under their wing and, and uh, encouraging them in the things of the Lord and giving them opportunities to uh, stand up here or to maybe uh, get up in the breaking of bread and these kinds of things. So it's just been a, it was just been a very encouraging day for me. Um, what I'd like to talk about tonight there was, a, there was a tape, or excuse me, a, a DVD series that was given to me, or loaned to me by uh, Joe Reese. Uh, it was, Jabe was over in, um, I think it was Ireland, and he was, he did a series uh, on the church. And one of the things, it was, it's an excellent one, you can get it also on, I believe, um, on CD, but what he encourages the assemblies to do, and that is to basically go through a, um, a series of, gospel, of biblical doctrines. And um, he listed uh, some in, a, in an appendix in a workbook that he uh, came along with that series. And it was uh, it entitles The Doctrine of God. It's Theology, Christology. Uh, pneumatology, that's the, the, regarding the spirit, the doctrine of the spirit of uh, the spirit world, which is um, angels and demons, the doctrine of divine communication, the word of God, uh, prayer, the doctrine of the human race, uh, Israel and her remnant, the kingdom, the church, ecclesio uh, ecclesiology, the doctrine of salvation, which is the fancy word there is soteriology. And then finally, the doctrine of future things, which is eschatology. And he basically said that every assembly, every group of Christians should go through this, uh, these topics, these uh, very important doctrines in about a five-year period and then can continually repeat it. Because if you don't, then you're going to have people coming in and not really understanding what they believe or why they believe it. And so tonight what I want to do, and it's not an exhaustive uh, presentation in any sense of the word, but I want to just touch on one of the things that uh, was encouraged for the assemblies to teach, and that's basically the Bible. What, where did we get the Bible? How did we get the Bible? Uh, some of the backgrounds on that. And... Um, I've been using, 
as one of my resources, this book right here, it's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. It is one of the most scholarly works. Uh, it is very involved and it gives you a lot of great material and documents everything. If you don't have this in your library at home, I strongly suggest you get it. Um, it, it goes into tremendous details on all these uh, subjects and, and one of the subjects, the subject I want to talk about tonight regarding the Bible. Let's turn to 1 Peter th chapter 3 and verse 15. In 1 Peter, and 3, and verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So we are to be able to defend thanks, not only what, what we believe, but why we believe it. And if someone were to come to you and say, do you believe in the Bible? You say, of course I do. Well, why? Why is this book right here any different than the Quran or the Book of Mormon or Doctrine and Covenants or some of the other uh, Eastern uh, religions and that sort of thing in, in their writings. Why is this different? And how do you know that this is, in fact, the Word of God? If a group of astronauts got, let's say 20 years from now, uh, got in a rocket ship and, and went all the way to Mars, and they landed on the surface of Mars and got out and were exploring around. And they ran, a, they, they discovered a, a, a tablet, a rock, you know, the flat rock that had writing on it. They picked it up and they took it back home. And they auctioned it off. <laughs> they put it up for auction. What do you think it would go for? Do you think anybody would be interested in knowing what this particular formation with this writing on uh, would, would mean? Oh, that it would go for incredible amounts of money. Well, I have news for uh, you tonight. We have something a lot that came originated a lot further than Mars. And it was written by the hand of God. And it's the Bible worth a lot more than anything found on the surface of Mars. In the book of Psalms, chapter 56, verse 4, it says, In God I will praise his word. And of course, one of the familiar verses that we know in Psalm 119.105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. And I'm, I believe I've, I've shared this before, but <clears throat> when, I, when we had the opportunity to go to Israel, and one of, the, one of the days that we were in Jerusalem, we were 
we met with a group of archaeologists from Chicago University. Now, they weren't Christians, uh, but they were showing us some of the antiquities that they had discovered. And one of the things that was discovered was a, a little bowl that had a, a, a kind of a ring attached to it. Okay, it was all out of clay, and it was pretty large, so even your thumb would fit through it pretty easily, and they couldn't figure it out until finally they came to the conclusion that this little device was used to be put on your toe because you've got open sandals, and in that little bowl, you put oil and a wick. Boy, talk about getting hot feet, but... I mean, they would light it, and that's, that was your flashlight. <laughs> it would light your path as you walked. And I, I don't know how they would do it without spilling the oil all over the place, but apparently it worked, uh, and you would walk into the light. And you think about this, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the Bible, as we know it, is unique. Now, in the... English language, there's no such thing as more unique or most unique. It is unique. There's no uniquer or uniquest. It's just simply unique. And Webster defines unique as, number one, it says one and only, single, soul. Secondly, it defines it as different from all others, having no like or equal. And so I want to go over a few things, and you know, we might not even use up all the time tonight, which is, I guess, fine for you guys. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about the uniqueness of the Bible's continuity, the way it holds together, or the way it works together. If I were to hand out a slip of paper to everybody in this room and a pencil, <clears throat> and you would all write down an answer to a question that I would ask you, and the question would be this. Should the current speed limit in the United States, 65 miles an hour, be increased or decreased? And why? Everybody here, write your answer. What do you think? Would we, would we all 100% agree on what the uh, response to that question would be? I don't think so. And yet, we're all pretty much from the same economical, cultural class here, pretty much, okay? And we pretty much agree together. But our answers would be vastly different, I am sure. Now, the Bible was written over a 1,600-year period, which is basically 60 generations. It was written by over 40 authors, different men. One was a political leader trained in the University of Egypt. Who was that? Moses. We have fishermen. John, Peter. <laughs> uh, that was a reverse. <laughs> um, a herdsman. Who said it? What did you say? Amos. Amos. Very good. Military general. 
Joshua. Cupbearer. Nehemiah, very good. A prime minister. Say again. Did you say Daniel? Very good. Boy, this guy's hitting them all here. Okay. A doctor. Luke. A king. David and his son Solomon. Tax collector. Matthew. A Pharisee. Paul. Very good. And, of course, a shepherd, which would be David. It was written, the Bible was written on three different continents. What were they? Asia, Europe, Africa. Very good. It was written in three different languages. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Very good. Well, you can see the diversity of all these different things, and yet its theme is absolutely consistent from, from beginning to end. That in itself is tremendous proof that it is not just simply a regular book. Its subject matter includes hundreds of controversial subjects. You can imagine those subjects. How to raise children. How to uh, fin your, uh, handle your finances. All kinds of things. And yet, its human authors wrote with harmony and continuity from Genesis to Revelation. You know, it was interesting that for many, many years, the critics of the Bible said that there is no way that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Because in Moses' time, there was no writing that would allow that to be, happen. The writing hadn't developed, they said, until a, several centuries after Moses' time. And then came along the archaeologists. And they discovered some tablets from uh, Hammurabi. Habaram, oh, I'll never say it. Hammurabi. There you go. And these dated almost to the time of Abraham. So the critics uh, were wrong on that. What is the common theme of the Bible? The common theme of the Bible is God's redemption of man. It is the world's bestseller. There have it has been published in more languages than any other book that has ever been written. So let's talk about the uniqueness of its survival. When the Bible, when Scripture was written originally, it was on material that perishes or decays. And so it was copied for several hundred years until, obviously, eventually, uh, you had the Gutenberg Press was invented. Yet, in all of these copies, it never diminished in its style, corrections, or existence. The Bible has more manuscript evidence than any ten pieces of classical literature combined. I think 
I think uh, Shakespeare has got maybe 200 copies, original copies. The Bible has thousands. And so you say, well, A.T. Robertson, who is the author of the most comprehensive uh, grammar uh, expert uh, of the New Testament Greek, says that there are some 8,000 manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate and at least 1,000 for other early versions. And you say, well, okay, so there's a lot of copies. What is that? How does that prove that the Bible is, is correct? Well, what they do is they take all of those different copies and they compare them against each other to see what the variations are. And has there been, you know, it's like if, if we started saying, you know, one particular phase. We, we played this game when we were young kids. You had a big circle and you whisper in someone's ear something. And then they turn and they whisper the supposedly the same thing to the next person. And by the time it gets around to 20 or 30 people and gets to the other end, then the, other, the last person is supposed to say what they heard. And it was not even close to what the first person was supposed to say. Because when, if it's just verbal, there's all kinds of possibilities of misinterpretation and, and that sort of thing. But with the Bible and... Again, in, one of, in this book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he goes into the tremendous care that is taken when they copied one manuscript to another. It's, it's absolutely incredible how important it was to them to do it correctly. When uh, I was, again, over in Israel, and we went to the Hebrew University in their basement, that's where the the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, are on display, and it's a really dark room. They don't want any more decaying of the, the parchment uh, from the lights, and so um, it's pretty dimly lit. But the thing is, is that, and of course, you know about what hap how the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. There was a little shepherd boy looking for one of his dad's goats, and he was down in the area of Qumran, which is right next to the Dead Sea. And there's uh, a lot of caves there. I mean, I took a couple pictures of it. There's caves everywhere. And so he figured that maybe the goat had gone into one of those caves. And so he took a rock and he threw it from a distance into the cave. You know, and if the goat's in there, he'll, it'll you know, scare the goat and he'll hear some noise. Well, what he heard was some shattering. And he goes, wow. You know, so he goes in there and he finds these clay pots. One, the one he hit was all shattered. And they were copies of the Old Testament, actually the, the Greek Septuagint, written about 200 years before the time of Christ. This is back in 1948. And eventually these, they were recovered. I think he actually uh, sold them, uh, well, it would be like Craigslist here, but I mean, he, he sold them on the market, but eventually they got back into the correct hands. And these, of course, when they unrolled it, it was, they, they used uh, neurosurgeons from the, from the uh, hospital to open this thing up because it was like brain surgery and trying to keep it from cracking, but yet even still they had just uh, thousands of small little pieces. And it would be like taking this and cutting it up into small pieces and then trying to piece it together like a puzzle. Well, anyway, they have the, the scroll up there. And then right below it in the, in the university, right below it they have... The, new, te uh, the uh, uh, new American Standard, right underneath it. And uh, it's word for word. <laughs> In fact, they, the comment there was that there's between the 
uh, I, scrolls of Isaiah and the book, the Bible that we have in our hands, there was 17 differences total, 17. And the 17 differences between something that was written 200 years before Christ and what we have in our hands right now was basically a matter of uh, spelling. For example, our, we, the way we spell color, C-O-L-O-R. In England, how do you spell it? O-U-R. Okay? It's the same word, it's just spelled differently. So a lot of that has to do it, but not, there was no uh, diversion of the main meaning of the verse and everything. It was, it was really incredible. And so the, the survival of the, the Bible. In, uh, in the 1700s, there was a French um, philosopher Actually, he was an infidel, which means he's an unbeliever. His name was Voltaire. He died in 1778, but before he died, he said, um, he quoted, he said, in 100 years, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. That was his quote. Well, in 100 years, who was swept into a... <laughs> into history. It was Voltaire, and God's word and Christianity continued on. In Psalm 119, verse 89, the Bible says, thy word is settled in heaven. So we talked about the uniqueness of its survival, and talk about the uniqueness of its teaching. And one of the strongest defenses of the Bible and why it's completely different than any other religious book is prophecy. You can't deny it. It's there. And no book ever written has more predictions that have come true to, of individuals, of nations, and events than the Bible. Now, in Isaiah chapter 45... Verse 28, let's take a look at that. Isaiah 45, and that's not verse 28, is it? 44, you're right. I want one chapter too many. It's talking about who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built. That is so important. Because this is 150 years before Cyrus was even born. So to predict that there would be someone in the future giving his name, but not only, I mean, I could say, well, yeah, 150 years from now, there's going to be a, a person born named Joe. Wow. Wow. You know, that's, that's no prediction. But if I were to say that he would do this, 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 and this, and he did, then that would be something else. You know, that would be a noteworthy. And so here is one of the proofs. And so mark this in your Bible, okay? This is a tremendous uh, defense of the Bible. Isaiah 44, 28, showing that. Now, the, the Old Testament, and again, 
like I said, again, get this book because in it has a whole section on the Old Testament predictions of the coming Messiah. And uh, was, was there ever a time recorded in the Bible where these uh, Old Testament prophecies were shared with anybody in the New Testament? Yeah, I think you know that. Remember those two disciples coming from Emmaus right after the resurrection? And the Lord Jesus met with them on the road. And he shared with them the Old Testament predictions of who he was and what he was going to do, how he was going to die for the sins of the world. Do you, would you be able to, would I be able to, uh, go through the Old Testament, Zechariah and some of these others, and be able to pull out verses that directly predict about the coming Messiah, who he is, where is, where is he going to be born? You know, there, you know, it says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, there were two Bethlehems. You know, it was Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrata. And uh, exactly right to the uh, day that he was going to be born. I mean, you go into Daniel and these kinds of things. So it's really important for you and I to have an idea of some of these verses that we can share with others to show them. Um, when it wasn't with my group, I believe it was with my parents' group, and I think the, the McKays were at this other time when they went to Israel, but uh, at one of the restaurants, I believe it was, uh, a lady uh, came over, and she was a, a doctor, a Jewish doctor, and a uh, medical doctor, and she started asking Jabe, but why is your group different than all these other groups that come through? And he was able to share with her from the Old Testament, from her own writings, her own books, the Messiah, and shared with her. And I, I'm not quite sure if she got saved or not, but uh, we, we should all be able to have that ability. And so <clears throat> we talked about the uniqueness of its teaching. Prophecy. Then we come to archaeology. Um, Nelson Gleick, who is the former president of the Jewish Theological Seminary in the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, he's one of the three greatest archaeologists, said, of all of my archaeology, archaeological investigation, I have never found one artifact of antiquity that contradicts any statement of the word of God. And then one of the greatest archaeologists of, uh, the, that we know of, William F. Albright, said, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. And so we come in and says, what, uh, what determines that a particular writing is included in the canon of Scripture? Now, the word canon, what does that mean? It's not the thing that makes a loud noise and shoots out a big steel ball. Well, that's, that's one type of canon. But the, when we talk about the canon of Scripture, the word canon really comes from the word read, R-E-E-D, which means a measuring device. So when we're talking about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about measurement. And there's basically five... Uh, proofs that a particular 
writing should be included in the Bible. Number one, the question is asked of this particular writing, is it authoritative? In other words, does it say, thus saith the Lord? And you say, well, a lot of writings say that. Well, that's true, but at least it has to have that. Number two, is it prophetic? Does it have prophecy that has actually taken place? Was it written by man or was it written by God? The third one is, is it authentic? And they, there's a saying, if in doubt, throw it out. If there's any question whether or not a particular writing is not authoritative, then or authentic, you throw it out. Number four, is it dynamic? In other words, is it life transforming, the things that are written in it? Or is it just simply history or, you know, talking about events? Number five, and this is very, this is very important. Was it received, collected, read, and used by the people of God? Again, was it received, collected, read, and used by the people of God? And it's interesting. Let's take a look at 2 Peter. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 16. And in this particular uh, verse, we see that Peter acknowledges Paul's work as scripture parallel to the Old Testament scripture. And it says here, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of Scripture. So here Peter is talking about Paul's writings as equal to the rest of Scripture. Now how was the, the, the Bible prepared? Well, the first divisions... Um, took place in 586 B.C. Uh, they were the Pentateuch, the first five books, and they were, they were in 154 groupings to facilitate its reading in a three-year cycle. So this took place back in 586 B.C. Um, Athanasius of Alexandria in A.D. 367 gives us the earliest list of New Testament books as we now have in our present uh, Bible. That's 367 AD. The modern chapter divisions were made in the 13th century by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So that's just kind of an idea of how the things uh, came about. The Latin Vulgate was the first Bible to incorporate both verse and chapter divisions in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Josh McDowell said, uh, one thing to keep in mind is that the church did not create the canon or books included in what we call scripture. Instead, 
the church recognized the books that were inspired from their inception. They were inspired by God when they were written. And why is the Bible unique? Well, it's unique in a couple of ways. First of all, the Bible simply just tells it like it is. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you look at all these gory things and killing, you know, whole uh, towns and children and, and then babies and that sort of thing. Uh, and the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the events of the human race. It tells it exactly like it is. Um, one of the reasons why we know about the New, especially the New Testament, is that the writers wrote things about themselves that were actually embarrassing. Now, if it was of man, if you were, let's say, Peter, uh, or let's, you know, would you talk about the fact that, uh, you know, that you had some, uh, some problems? No. Or Matthew, or John, you know, they, they told it exactly how it was. For example, um, at the resurrection, who was the first people at the grave? It was women. And you need to understand, in that culture, the women, their testimony was not even admissible in court. They were put at that such a, a, a it was not even regarded as uh, verifiable. So why didn't they say, well, John and Peter were the first ones to the grave? No, they told it exactly the way it was. It's called the doctrine of embarrassment. And uh, Lee Strobel, uh, in his book, talks about this. He said this is one of the reasons he, Lee Strobel was an atheist. And he set out to prove or disprove Christianity. And in his studies, he was... Um, a Yale graduate, and he was—he um, worked for the Chicago Tribune, um, and uh, so he researched uh, a lot of things. And so he used all his techniques that he learned in college to verify the the Bible, and that's one of the things that really he went back to the earliest possible recordings uh, in the New Testament, which would be the Book of Mark, which was the uh, actually Peter's eye testimony. Um, and, and he realized that when the Bible says, when the Lord Jesus called himself um, the Son of Man, he said, well, there you go. He never claimed he was God. But then he did some more research, and he found out even from the book of Daniel that the Son of Man is actually a divine title. And so he, as he did this research and searching out, if, is this thing verifiable, the Bible verifiable, he came to the point after a two-year study realizing that it would take more faith to continue in his atheism than it would be to, to believe uh, the Bible, to believe Christianity. And he got saved. And so as we look at the Bible, and again, the Bible... All the books that have ever been written are for our information, but the Bible is for our transformation. I didn't give you a whole lot of things tonight. Uh, you know, it's not an exhaustive study, like I said, but I'm hopefully 
you, I gave you something that you really have a little taste now that you want to go and search it out a little bit more. Do you know scriptures from the Old Testament that you can prove to, let's say, a Jewish person that Christ is indeed the Messiah? That's important. And like I said on Tuesday, when this uh, group from Pitcher College comes over here, uh, pray for me. <laughs> that uh, I can give them clear, uh, a clear gospel message. Give, I really want to give them the gospel. Now, whether the professor will allow me to do that, I don't know. But uh, the reason why we're here is to preach the gospel and to preach this word, the Bible. So let's just uh, close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the fact that we have your word in our hands today. It's proven itself through prophecy, through archaeology, but most importantly, Father, your word has proven to us through our own transformation in our own hearts. Father, when we realize that the message of the Bible is God's redemption of man, we're so thankful, Heavenly Father, that you redeemed us, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we want to thank you so much for your son tonight. We want to thank you that your word that you've given us reveals to us your son, and your son reveals to us your heart. So, Father, we I pray that the words that were spoken tonight would um, encourage us to continue to study your word that has been given to us, uh, the uniqueness of its survival, the uniqueness of its teaching. And so, Father, I just pray that you would bless this evening in your word, in your son's worthy and precious name. Amen.